Hi, Richie. Hi, Sen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 234 of the Snack Covenant. Richie. Yes, Sen. <laughs> who's, who's here? What is this? What's happening? It's an unintentionally aroused Loki. <laughs> it's alright, I have that effect on people. <laughs> You have been working on a lot of interesting stuff since we last talked to you. Well, I got a website now, so... <laughs> Tell us more. The idea was, okay, just gotta make a website and I can have all my content consolidated onto there. So all my writings, everything I've pretty much worked on. Since talking to you guys, there was both finishing up on the website, but then also actually launching it and getting it all through. Pretty much all my content's there. There's like a few like remaining things from my old Reddit translation post, but otherwise you can go there and you can pretty much read everything I've had. It's got picks, wonderful picks, most of them coming from Santa, which who's done like Santa's case done like amazing work. You see some of these things and you're like, they're absolutely gorgeous. And what's the link to your website? You can actually find it at lokisouls.com. That's one word, Loki, L-O-K-E-Y, souls.com. Awesome. Thank you. And for people who may be new to the podcast, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? I am a, I guess I consider myself a Soulsborn content creator, I guess at this point. I don't know what I would call myself, honestly. I mostly just comment and analyze Souls lore for these past few years. My main focus is on the localization and localization errors, showing how these different, let's just say some of these translation flubs can really affect our understanding of the Souls game's lore. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Loki. Thank you, yeah. So Loki, today you're here with us to tell us more about Demon Souls. Yes, we had our first parts where we talked about some of the origins on Demon Souls in terms of like the beginning of the story and the lore and like the world and all that. And we got up through the monumentals, I believe, and then we were going to eventually do the countries, but then, you know, life happened. <laughs> yeah. It was a very interesting podcast, and I will actually put it below in the description. To give like a short rundown, the idea that we basically talked about was that at the beginning of the world happens, God creates the world, and with that he decides, okay, let's have humans like appreciate this world, so he gives them all souls. And then it was like, oh god, no, no, turn back, turn like where's yeah. the undo button? Humans immediately start abusing their souls, they're misusing, they're they're doing it for malice and evil, and so God's like, Okay, I'm not happy with this, so he leaves this bottomless nothingness called the old one, a demon that's supposed to devour all the souls, and then with it, hopefully humans are not gonna be using their souls for evil and magic and all these things, and instead just use them so you can think and enjoy the world, you know, just just not be little shits. <laughs> And then eventually, though, we end up with three distinct, I guess I should say, eras in the timeline going forward, which is sort of this mythic era, which is all these heroes, like, it's sort of analogous, I think, to, like, pre-Dark Age Greece, or the era of, like, Heracles and uh, Odysseus, and, like, all these, like, great heroes of, like, men who are, like, greater than men or whatever. And this is sort of the idea that's sort of being 
transplanted into the Demon Souls world. And then we move on to the classical era, which is much like post-Dark Age Greece and like Rome and all these places, where it's like, okay, all this age of heroes, that's like the past, but now we're like these societies with all our pagan gods and our civilizations, and we're not as great as the age of heroes, so to speak. But we do have like sort of this understanding that the soul is somehow divine in our different civilizations and our cultures, and we try to like become like more powerful using it. At the top of this sort of like hierarchy of pagan cultures is the monumentals. And the monumentals, they get a little bit greedy for power, and as a result, they end up awakening the old one again. And just like God expected, <laughs> the old one starts just sucking up all the souls for all the humans who relied on it for so long and ends up trying to basically destroy the world and all of mankind with it and then they were able to lull it to slumber it goes to sleep again and then now we get to move forward into the medieval era which is what we'll be talking about today with all the different cultures cool cool thank you so we're gonna talk about the religion that came out of the first and second scourges after the monumentals lead the old one back to slumber and like the soul arts get banned as they proclaim and magic sort of starts kind of disappearing everyone starts getting rid of magic now obviously this means there's a huge anti-magic sentiment at the time that makes a certain faith which pops up we don't have any evidence of this faith existing before this period so it seems to just pop up at this point and this will be relevant for later in the land of Murd, it's where we have the first temples going out now like i said the faith doesn't have an actual name I call it the Temple of God because it's just an easier way to kind of imagine it because they believe in this one monotheistic God. As far as we know, they just have temples. Now, the localization calls it a church, but the Japanese text only ever refers to the priesthood. So again, this is again another reason why I just created this little fan term to make it easier. Mm -hmm. So the Temple of God begins in the land of Murd, and we kind of see like with their like outfits and stuff how it has like this kind of like somewhat unique armor design like they have scale armor and things that you don't really see in like the other countries and stuff we were going to talk about but the big thing is that Murd is now lost and you can theorize about that but the important part is that the religion has survived it's become the predominant faith what characterized this religion are a few things one anti-magic sentiment so like they don't like magicians like that's made very clear throughout the game but then on the other side we have the idea that each of these holy men are supposed to be priests and they're supposed to be dedicated to god so there's this huge purity culture which comes out and i've talked about this before in past podcasts with some of the countries we're talking about this idea that there's this huge focus by the temple on purity what I mean by that is that in Japanese religion, especially Shinto, you have this idea that there are impurities and they're separate from sin in that. And these impurities, this corruption that can manifest is very much spiritual and needs to be cleansed. And there's this idea that the temple sort of focuses on dedicating yourself to prayer, trying to keep yourself pure, both physically and spiritually, try to avoid all these things, resurrecting the dead, eating other men <laughs> for their flesh. Like that's impure. And Loki... What is the word for that in Japanese? Oh, kegare. <gasps> kegare? Yes, kegare, yeah. And... <laughs> oh god, there's a backstory here, isn't there? Oh no. Hi, Richie here. Loki, having clearly led a charmed life, is unaware of the backstory between me and the word kegare. Kegare is a word that recurs throughout the Japanese scripts of Dark Souls and Bloodborne, and probably Sekiro if I'd bothered looking at it. 
It's a term I talked about a lot on my old channel about five years ago, but because this was five years ago, I was consequently besieged by angry comments, telling me that the games were written in English first, the Japanese script didn't count, and that I should shut the fuck up. <laughs> and where are those people now? No, seriously, tell me, tell me where they are, because I want to preemptively block them on Discord. Back to the podcast. Hi, Sin here. What Richard doesn't know is that I already have an outline for Bastard's Curse 2, Return of the Curse. If you have questions that you would like me to add to the outline you see on screen, please post them below. Back to the podcast. On the topic of like this idea of being impure and being sinful, and what's interesting in the case of Demon Souls is they seem to sort of conflate it because they're taking the very Shinto concept from Japanese religion, and they're sort of mixing it with sort of like the Western Judeo-Christian sort of idea of sin. Freck was actually a high-ranking priest. We see this on his website profile, but even more importantly, this was supposed to be in his armor set. My impression is that basically these are actually the dirty clothes of like saint they were supposed to write, but they put sage because they, they translate the term of sage, uh, sagein or uh, sage and things like that as holy man to saint. And this again becomes relevant again because there's this idea that People sort of think of the idea of when they see saint, they think of like something in Christianity where the idea is like, you know, you die and then you go through this process and they're like, okay, you're something doing so. It just means that you're a, like a holy person. Now, sometimes that can mean it's special, like in the traditional idea of like the Christian saints, but like it has to be understood that's much wider. And we can see in Dark Souls, it's used as basically a byword for clergymen in this case. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you like see like Aldrich, Saint of the Deep, or you see like Urbane is called the saint, but he's not the same as Astraea. As again, we'll talk about the idea is that she's a little bit different or special. And then this is sort of an important distinction to make. That's not inherently anything more special. And the idea is that these these holy men like freck were supposed to be sort of all special but the idea is that their clothes got dirty and again this goes back to the idea that miyazaki used as a narrative device the idea is that freck's clothes are supposed to be the clothes of a of a holy man just like urbane so you can kind of see if you put them side by side they look almost identical like freck just has like this added coat or like mantle he has like sort of like i guess for a little extra warm <laughs> The idea is that he was once a priest, but now he's clothes of God and filthy to also reflect how he's fallen from the ways of God. You see this again in the Shrine of Storms. When we go to the Shrine of Storms, we find the place where Patches is kicking all of these people down. And we learn that Urbane's been kicked down, but he's actually not the first. Now we see several corpses with indications that there have been like clergymen that have been coming to this place for very good reason. But the Black Phantom encountered at the entrance that's blocking Urbane's way from getting out of here. His clothes are in fact the sage's clothes, because the idea is that he's been down here, he was kicked down here by patches, so all of his clothes have gotten filthy, and this is especially clear in that he ended up dying down there, and the point is that as a result, he ends up becoming this vengeful, resentful spirit. So the idea is, again, this idea that his clothes got dirty, so his faith ended up getting dirty. God didn't come, he didn't help me. And then when he died, he ended up, his spirit, his phantom, ended up coming back with all this rage and emotion. He ended up becoming this terrible black phantom that's now <laughs> killing all his his, his, bro his brothers of the cloth. <laughs> now that also get kicked <laughs> down by patches. <laughs> Urbane proves to be someone who, who lives a very decadent life. If you see his him in the Nexus, he's got like these like baskets of like bread and like fruit. Like he he's he's definitely not hurting here. Let's just say during this calamity, yeah. and he seems to have good intentions in that he actually seems to come in and he legitimately wants to 
help the people there, but it's clear that he's someone who's so disconnected. He he doesn't really have to practice what he preaches. He just sort of has to say, it's like, you know, all you commoners have to live by, but he doesn't really have, he's never had to suffer or live the hard life where he has to choose. And as we see with his buddy there, his buddy had to learn the hard way what happens when you're in dire needs and don't, and, and like prayer isn't helping him. But then when we get down to the the other ranks, obviously the, the temple seems to have tons of like soldiers and like warriors who act on it. Like there's like these priest warriors who are like they armored up and they go around and they travel and they seem to be like doing jobs on behalf of God. It's never clarified if like there's any wide scale wars or anything like that. But there's at least seems to be signs that they're at least ready that if they're traveling and we see that several of the people who come with Urbane are in fact are these priest warriors. This is a good segue into actually something I think a lot of people actually really care about, which is the Vinlands. Right. Vinland isn't a place, it's just a family. Brother and sister, Garl and Selene, are holy knights. They seem to work for the church. They have like special items and things related to that with Bramped and Blind and all that. But what's more interesting is sort of like, where did they like sort of where did like the Vinlands come from? Because they seem to be this high noble family that became really intertwined with the temple. And this seems to be a result of their background because we actually hear reference to how they have this holy tree, basically, this sacred tree. Now, the Japanese sort of refers to is somewhat vague and that just sort of refers to a tree which is somehow associated with God. It's not very specific. It could be like a vessel for God. It could be just blessed by God. Like it's, some, it's somewhat vague on what it is. However, if we actually look at their emblem, it's actually uh, like, a, what do you call it? Like a string of grapes? I'm not sure what you would call that exactly. But it's basically just a bunch of grapes. Which makes sense of Vinland. Yeah, so Vinland yeah. just means Vineland. So the idea would be their holy tree may actually be referring to a grape tree. And in fact, it's actually referring to like they were originally like in orchards and like much like how like wine is associated with like Christianity and things like that. There may be a similar idea that there's something holy uh, related to wine in the Demon Souls universe. Or at the very least, the, the priests really like their uh, alcohol. <laughs> in the end, Garl and Selene seem to be a product of sort of like a noble family who happened to own maybe a bunch of orchards and then they sort of end up having these like ties with the temple and then over time obviously you're going to have these nobles are going to be like the temple's a high status place so we want to go in and we see this a lot there's again this a huge association with decadence to like this idea that Urbane is like a noble person like he's so noble in doing so and this idea like oh there's these high class people who are such obviously because obviously if you're someone of high class that also means that you are of upstanding character naturally and then Garl and Selene, it's not clarified with their father, actually, because there's the quest line with going to the valley and like their father seems to have died. And Selene is sort of given his last words to pass on to Garl. So her whole mission is, OK, I got to find my brother so that way I can give him dad's last words. And it's never stated what the exact nature of these words were. But we can't kind of infer it from basically what she ends up giving him, because the idea was she gives us items she was originally supposed to give him. And these items can either be grass, which is like, okay, these are grass, which like heal disease and stuff, which, okay, makes sense. He's like in a, in a swampy bog full of disease. So of course, like, hey, you know, maybe he'll appreciate this if you give him. But the other thing is actually one of the priest rings, which are given to these high ranking priests who are doing so. So it sort of gives this indication that, you know, you have the patriarch very close with the temple, probably one of these high ranking priests wants his children to sort of be like holy knights here, invest in the church. So it's probably something to the effect of, hey, son come back now like i don't know what you're doing but i'm dying now so please come back and claim your inheritance or something like that now obviously girl's not in the mindset to uh do that at the moment mm -hmm. 
obviously there's other holy knights like Liziah, uh or Raziah and Vito, but like they're not too. I actually I recently learned that Raziah was actually like another armored core reference. I was like, oh, okay, another minor character gets brought up. Like that was actually cool. Hi, Richie here. The name Raziah originates with Miyazaki's first game, Armored Core for Answer. She's part of a cast including Old King, Strayed, Patches, Ostrava, and Writer Palish. Because characters in Armored Core communicate using their robot's callsign rather than their actual names, I had forgotten Raziah was called Raziah. Her robot's name is Ruler, which seems rather presumptuous for someone who is ranked 12th. Back to the podcast. Second to last major thing for the temple is actually Maiden Astraya. So, again, going back to this idea, she's called the Sixth Saint, but it'd be more accurate to say she's a saintess, because she's specifically called a holy woman in the Japanese. So it's specifically referring to someone of the feminine persuasion who is considered somehow more sacred than the average woman and the reasoning seems to be because in her youth astraya had found a ring the temple decided this is a revelation item from god's like uh, god is somehow revealing something to us through this it's a ring that helps increase like magic memorization so you can like cast more miracles and things like that so it seems to be that the temple sort of found it, and they're like okay this there's something holy about this and we've discerned and this seems to be have made her the sixth saintess so it seems like this has happened before there's been other other women who've probably been in similar situations where they they found something or they somehow something happened involving them that caused them to be elevated to this degree astraya is portrayed as she's sincere the ring she found is called the ring of sincere prayer versus the one that the temples and the priests use which is the ring of devout prayer where they're, they're very devout they follow all the laws of the scripture but they're not necessarily people who in their heart are truly sort of embodying the pure life that they're they're trying to practice in the law Intention-wise, she's sincere, or is that something that she's trying to portray to the world? It seems to be legitimately she's sincere. The priests of the temple seem to be the ones who are projecting they're sincere, they're good, because they follow the laws. But Australia seems to be the one who, before Valley of Defilement, she was following the laws, but she was someone who, in her heart, truly believed and embodied everything she had. And she truly, actually, seems to be someone who is truly good at heart. But then this, of course, brings up to an important point, which is obviously when magic gets rediscovered in Boletaria and everything, suddenly miracles also get rediscovered. Everyone's like, oh, this is a sign from God that all the magicians need to be combated and these miracles are a countersign to it. And we have to sort of purify these souls in order to make them usable for our holy magic from God and like all this special stuff. But the problem is that miracles are clearly just magic. Obviously, a lot of magic equipment's compatible with miracles and just in terms of just concept, all of it just lines up that way. And then you get the talisman of beasts which more or less confirms that in fact magic and miracles are essentially they're just another form of the soul arts Mm -hmm. but then what makes this really interesting then is because the talisman of god the image sort of portrays this very abstract figure but it sort of looks almost like a massive bramble and then we get the talisman of the beasts which is supposed to be explicitly supposed to be the idea is that like sort of like the image of god is the old one here and the description even points out the idea was that the image of god that was mentioned in the talisman of god is in fact just portraying the old one so it's this idea that all this like magic with miracles it isn't really at least expressly god's power it's actually just another form of magic which the temple has sort of misinterpreted 
they seem to be misguided in thinking that this is truly God's work and that their prayers have been answered and that he has given them a sign and these are things. And this goes back to, again, to Astraea. She finds this ring. It's like, okay, well, are these really revelation items or what these are? These were old magic items from the pagan era, which are like leftovers in the culture and sort of they get rediscovered. And then like some of them get looked at by the temple and the temple are like, oh, you know, this one, this one, this one, this one shoots white light. So clearly it's holy. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not like that blue light metal. That, that, that's heresy. We gotta, we gotta destroy that. Like all that nasty stuff. Astraea, for all of her sincerity and everything, the item she found, it seems like it wasn't like, oh, God led Astraea in order to find this item and share it with the rest of the temple and the rest of the world, so to speak. It was just, she got lucky. She happened to find it. She was someone who was born into a fortunate family. She happened to find a ring. It happened to be interpreted that it was a revelation item. And it just ended up all these sort of chains of happenstance ended up leading to her having this very privileged and nice life where she's like showered with praise as this, again, the sixth saintess. And the idea would be, okay, why did she find it? Well, maybe because she actually has magic power. Like women in particular are sort of born with this greater magic potential and magical talent than men are. And this leads to women end up excelling in many ways. It makes you have to wonder, you know, there's six saintesses. We talked about it last time with the idea of the timeline being about like 300 years between the end of the first scourge and the beginning of the second scourge. So it's like, you know, that's about like two women per like every century. That's like pretty reasonable when you have like all these witches you're trying to get rid of. And just, you know, a few of them, you're like, oh, no, these aren't witches. These are holy women. You see, these are saintesses because they found revelation items of God, not these weird magic items, this terrible stuff that we have to get rid of, this awful, evil magic that they're using. Like, so you can kind of see how they're there may be a huge disconnect because the soul arts have been banned and everyone tried to forget about them and now the temples they've forgotten their own history and so that history sort of being distorted by them as it goes on so loki you mentioned that witches were persecuted this is mainly seen through the lens of Uria, though we get a little bit more of this with Mephistopheles, but this idea that some of these women who just happen to be born with more magic potential to the point that magic is sort of just natural to them. So the idea was like, if Freck is going to do all his magic sort of in terms of like, okay, there's formulas and like intelligence, I'm going to reason my way to this. Uria is more like, she's sort of like a miracle caster almost in that she sort of just naturally sort of feels and has this sort of spiritual almost connection to the soul arts and how she casts them and uses them. So like you have women like her who are born like that, but they apparently are persecuted in this sort of era where the temple is dominant again goes back to this idea there's this huge anti-magic sentiment back at the beginning so naturally everyone latches on to the temple and they're abandoning their old face because you know those pagan faces those weren't very helpful when the demons came mm-hmm. the idea would be that the temple is now sort of this mainstream idea of okay magic bad we got to get rid of magic now what happens when you forget what magic really is because the idea was the magic was the soul arts it was using the soul in order to do all these crazy impossible things but the temple seems to only remember the magic aspect, at least originally, before the soul arts get rediscovered. So this puts witches in a very odd spot, because whenever a witch is now born and she ends up randomly casting magic, because again, this is something that's natural, it's intuitive, it's not something they can necessarily control. Like, say, like, I don't know, you're in your village and your daughter accidentally sets your house on fire. Well, now, suddenly there's this problem. She just set your house on fire through her hands or something like that. Like, suddenly now you, you got to call in the temple and the temple's like... Mm. <laughs> mm, it seems like you're using like some heresy here and then we have the case where like say witches seem to be persecuted we have cases where there's like rings that they wear which sort of like they're considered like criminals and sort of like they end up getting stoned and spat upon Yuria talks about how she's been mistreated her entire life because of this 
And then as a result of all this, we see how the mindset of both Mephistopheles and Yuria makes them more hardcore. They become more attached to the thing that everyone rejects them for because it's the only thing that seems to define their identity then. And as a result, they sort of just plow forward, which obviously just sort of perpetuates the problem for both parties because now witches are now sort of like this persecuted class. They're not trying to quote-unquote reform and stay in line. And then the temple's constantly dealing with this issue of witches. But then, like I said, there's this case where certain people like Astraea they're just born with just enough luck in order to avoid that fate. Mm-hmm. Probably helps when you're born into like a noble family who can kind of like, you know, talk to the priests and like be like, you know, hey, you know, I could give a sizable donation. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you. And now we're going to talk about Boletaria Palace. This is probably the next most important part of the sort of the modern setting because obviously this is where this is where <laughs> a lot does everything wrong <laughs> and puts us in this situation. Boletaria has uh, Duran. Duran, Duran. Hi, Richie here. For those of you too young to be forced to relive the '80s by people who peaked then. Duran Duran were a synth-pop band from Birmingham. The name is derived from a character from the film Barbarella, who is called Durand Durand. Their hit song, Hungry Like the Wolf, was sadly not used in Bloodborne's marketing campaign. Back to the podcast. The Old King Duran is different from Old King Alant. They actually use different kanji. So, like, when we're talking about Old King Alant, it's talking about him more, like, in terms of he's, like, a physically old man. Basically, it's like talking about Elizabeth I versus Elizabeth II. You know, one's living, but she's old, but the other is, like, old because she's been long dead. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, the same idea is being sort of played in here with, with Duran. He's like, he's the Old King, but, like, he's just, he's from a long time ago. But then the idea is that with Duran is that uh, he ends up founding Boletari and he becomes sort of this hero king and he ends up being wor- considered like a demigod and worshipped and loved. And that seems to be the basis for the Boletarian king sort of be considered holy. We see if you look at the archstone, they have like a halo around them, which we only see with them and with Latria. And this is because obviously the idea is that divine right, the mandate of heaven, this idea that these kings are somehow like special and that only this lineage going back to Duran are worthy of ruling the Boletarian people. Do you have any idea why it started at Duran? Actually, I, I do, because one of the things that was an interesting question that you should have when you're going through the game is, because all the demons that we see in Boletaria are creations of like Alon. He, he ended up creating these demons based on his knights, based on himself. <laughs> but the idea is that Duran was supposed to be living in this, this ancient era, so why is it that modern Boletaria, obviously the knights make sense, because it's a country of knights, it's all about like gallantry and chivalry, we see that in the statues and all that, but why wyverns? Why are, does he have all these wyverns running around? But then you may notice something very interesting. One, is that Alant and the Boletarian royal family in general are familiar with the old legends, which include reference to Duran's weapon, which he uses, which is the Northern Regalia, sort of the weapon that God left behind along with the old one to sort of tell people, hey, you can go down the path of good and be human, or you can go down the path of evil and be like demons, and well, you don't want to go down that path because you're going to end up suffering for it. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that man had his choice. And who knows, Duran may have even actually been there at the time when it was actually left. But in the end, he takes this magic sword. He has, like, all the faith, the reason, the strength, the dexterity. Like, he has all the necessary traits that are 
decently high, I think, for Demon Souls in order to wield this weapon. He ends up being someone who's clearly a great figure in his own right. <laughs> but then, what was he fighting? Well, who was his opponents? Well, what do we know? We know that the armor that he wields is some of the highest fire-resistant armor in the game. I think the only other armor set like that is actually the Brushwood set, which, for those that don't know, it's not actually made of Brushwood. <laughs> The Japanese name is like brushwood dyed. So like it's made the color of brushwood, which is like that brownish color. And that's sort of the point is that, okay, well, why did you want to color it like brushwood? You know, that type of dry, flammable wood. And that's because, again, it's another extremely high fire resistant armor. And it's like, okay, well, why would you color it though that way? It's almost like you're expecting the enemy to be dumb enough to actually like mistake you for something flammable and shoot fire at you. Oh, oh. <laughs> It seems like when Duran was founding the kingdom, it was specifically to combat wyverns, and the idea was they had to protect against the fire. Again, this goes back to Boletarian Knights. We see some of them draw purple flame shield, which again, purple's a royal color, but the idea is that this is a mysterious shield, and people don't really remember seems to be what it means anymore. Well, it's like, okay, well, this makes sense. If this was like your fight against wyverns, you're going to want to have fire-resistant shields. Like all the family, the warriors and their families who originally helped Duran fight this menace, because, you know, it's a, it's a dragon. He's a pretty scary dragon. These are people who, you know, once all is said and done, you're going to be rewarded with titles and land, and you're going to be honored as knights and all that. And suddenly you can see where Boletarian culture ends up emerging out of this. Duran is seen as a demigod as a result, to the point that they end up thinking like he's this eternal warrior. Even after he's died and buried in this mausoleum by the castle gates, they're still like, oh, he's this eternal warrior. He's still alive and like around and like sort of like the like sort of like the King Arthur legend, I suppose. And the idea is that he's never really dead, that he's too powerful and strong to have really died. The Northern Regalia gets split in two and put in the sword because Duran seems to have recognized that even though he used this power in order to get his people free of the Wyvern menace, it seems he didn't want his people actually using that power. So he's sort of the demigod who like has this powerful soul and he used obviously the soul arts with his magic sword in order to help get them out of through this crisis. But we don't see any evidence of Boletari itself during the classical era actually using or having any of these arts. It seems to be something that they purely discover with a lot later in the modern medieval era. And this becomes especially relevant when we talk about the legend that comes and passed down through the generations of Boletarian kings throughout the royal family. Duran wanted his descendants to make sure they passed along these stories. This is their heritage, this is why they're considered holy, this is why they have the right to rule and all that. And this sort of ends up sort of morphing as a result in that Boletaria doesn't seem to rely on the soul arts. They rely purely on just their own strength and everything. It's pointed out that Boletaria is at this point a small country. So it's like they have their land, they've protected it, they've liberated it from the wyverns. So now they're just going to sort of have their kingdom there and they're going to be very more defensive. And as a result, we go through who knows how long a Boletaria just seemingly existing. Then the first scourge happens. Right. And with the first scourge, the fog is spreading across the world. Everything, like, it's an apocalypse. Oh. oh my god, I love your impression of the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse. Ah. Uh. <laughs> well, listen, the fog moves at, like, molasses, so the fact that the Monumentals couldn't get the old one to fall asleep before most of it was allegedly destroyed just tells you how much they must, they must not really be, if they're the height of, like, magical culture. I don't know, I got some questions here. <laughs> to be fair, like, we've known about climate change for about 50 years <laughs> so it's actually hyper realistic yeah <laughs> all right so talking about the first scourge again though is the idea is that all these demons and everything are happening and then what we learn is is that 
we learn about the the Alans, and I've talked about this before, the idea of the Alan dynasty, that we're not talking about King Alant the Twelfth, as in like his first name is Alant and he's the twelfth one who was named that. Alant is a surname, there's Ariona Alant, we've talked about Rydell as like the little Alant, something like a little brother maybe to the king. And the idea is that he's the twelfth generation of the Alant kings in like this continuous dynasty and goes back, which seems to date back to just around the time that this scourge happens. So you have all of this like chaos happening, all these demons are going through. So as a result of that, you're going to have tons and tons of unhappy populace. And it's like, hey, you know, like what's going on? Like the apocalypse is happening. You can imagine some regimes might topple. So it's easy to imagine that maybe, you know, one dynasty falls and a new one rises to take over. It's quite possibly that the the king who we see who is given the archstones and sort of made one of the people who are supposed to help restore the world in the nexus that we see might be depicting the first king Alant in this case. Now, what do we know about this king? One, it's made clear in the Japanese text that he's ambitious. So, like, the, the Queen of Latria is intelligent, the king of Boletaria is ambitious. But he's ambitious, but he's in a small country. You know, you want to make a larger country. And well, what do you know? Twelve generations later in Boletaria is the <laughs> a big country now. And we have to also consider that in the case where Boletaria is, again, we talked about this idea of Boletaria being, it alone seems to be a country that where you had Duran, who they worshipped, and he was sort of the pagan figure who like, oh, he's the eternal warrior, he's a demigod, he's lived forever. And this seems to be their filter for the soul arts and their soul art worship. But otherwise, they seem to have been really much secular. They just relied on, you know, swords and shields. They're a knight culture at heart. And not so with the other cultures we see. A lot of these cultures were very much magic reliant. So the idea is that these magic cultures end up losing all their magic because now the soul arts are banned. They all acquiesce because, you know, magic is bad. It caused all these problems. We shouldn't have done it. It was a mistake. So they all rid of magic. But now we have a new problem. Suddenly, all their cultures collapse because everything ran on magic. Like, everything was about it. their religion, their cult, their society. Everything was about it. So all these cultures end up having to, to some extent or another, going through a major downsizing compared to what they were at the peak of their power. So suddenly, you have these cultures who aren't used to just being magicless. And you have this one small country which is quite used to being magicless. And you have a king who's very ambitious and doesn't like that he's just king of a small country. So you can easily imagine how Boletaria starts conquering and starts growing over time. And if the first King Alant dies, well, no problem. If he dies, then his will is obviously going to pass on to his next in line. And then this royal family is just going to keep inheriting this will to try to build and build and conquer and conquer until finally we, we get to the point where Boletaria is clearly the superpower of the world. So their will is passed down from generation to generation to the next boss. Oh, shut up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh no, what is this? <laughs> Hi, Richie here. So, wants me to tell you that she's been editing a whole lot of Reborn stuff together into one really long video, so I wanted Donna to be able to listen to all of our Reborn stuff together in one six hour compilation. Back to the podcast. Boletaria had the army in order to do all of this. Like, if we actually see, like, obviously they have the war dogs and stuff, there are soldiers, like we talked already before, like, they're, they're, on the defense side, they're, they're great. Now, on the offense side, they have a little bit of a problem. As I said, Boletaria is a small country. What does that mean? They also have a small population, smaller than at least many of the others. So, what, what happens is when they lose people, they don't have as much manpower they can afford to lose compared to some of the other countries maybe they're going against, or at least the bulk of their country countries, because like they're they just conquering and conquering and conquering. Like you're gonna lose people, so this creates a problem. Well, how are you gonna replenish those? Ah, easy. Just ensla just enslave the people you conquer. Oh wow. 
<laughs> yeah, we see this attire in the culture with the slave soldiers. They call them, I think, dreglings in the localization, at least in the original, I think. Yeah, yeah, the um, the dreglings are the, like, slave people. Yeah. Yeah. The merchant. He openly talks about, like, how the, the demons taking over isn't so bad. He was saying, like, the, the nobility treated me worse than the demons did, so I don't really care. And, like, you see this, actually. Like, their clothes and their outfits are, like, just, like, patchwork and, like, scattered. Their, like, shields are just, like, wood chippings that they sort of cobbled together. And I think the art book actually says this explicitly, that, like, they're they're outright abused. Like, they're just, like, beaten and treated. Like, you see one of them has, like, a crack in his skull, and they have to use, like, some, like, leftover metal parts in order to, like, stitch it. Their lives are just miserable, which is how Boletari keeps the control. That hey, you know, like, if a few of them get out of line, you just make an example of them. We actually see in the Boletarian gates at entrance to the left, I think, when you're facing the bridge, is that there's this execution ground where, like, Meralda and people are. Yeah. And it's the perfect solution to the problem of you don't have a big population as you're going and you're trying to conquer and conquer and conquer. Like, you gotta replenish the war machine. So you just, you take the people you have, you just treat them so bad that they can't really fight back and they're basically, like, conditioned to either, hey, you either die now or you maybe die on the battlefield. And Boletaria is conquering and conquering and conquering. And then they're making way so that way we have, like, the knights. So, like, you have, like, all these, like, royal and regal people of the motherland they never have to actually like really risk as heavily as the soldiers who are thrown in and are the ones who are the first to die in order to tire out or maybe get a few on the enemy so they can uh overwhelm them and this goes back to the idea that their first king was ambitious and he wants this and this is sort of like this is like the royal family's dream like, they really need to acquire this because this is like sort of the mission like this is sort of like the filial piety that pl comes into play here each generation is sort of just trying to fulfill it and Boletari is getting bigger and bigger and bigger but it's this endless war this endless sort of atrocities that are being committed in order to fulfill it it's a huge contrast to the idea of, oh, Boletaria is this place of gallantry and chivalry and honor and glory. And it's like, oh, you know, there's a, you know, it's very dirty. And you can even see this in how they're treated. Like, no one from Boletaria, like, bats an eye at, like, the idea that, like, these slaves exist. Ostrava, who's Prince Ariona, he has absolutely no, he's like, oh, I'm being surrounded by these slaves. It's awful. But he's never like, oh, God, these slaves. How, where did this happen? How did this happen? Like, he only cares about the demons. Like, this is just yeah. this is just the Boletarian way of life. You know, the, you have these slaves that do everything for you. They conquer. They fight for you. Like, like this is, just, you know, it's a fight. You know, like, we're, we're a great, wonderful, gallant country. If we look at sort of some of the knights that we have, we have like characters like Alfred and Metis, who are supposed to be like the Tower Knight and the Penetrator, or the uh, originally in the Japanese, the Penetrating Knight or the Penetrate Knight. Like these these knights sort of seem to represent these sort of ideals of the culture. So like if you look into the game files, for example, the Tower Knight and the Penetrator are referred to respectively as the King's Shield and then the King's Sword. The, the king is protected by these knights, and sort of the knights are embodied in these two figures. One represents the shield, and one represents the sword. And Alfred and Meta seem to be, either they're inheriting this from the culture, like this is just sort of a thing, like two knights always represent that, or it's just they happen to emulate that ideal, so to speak. The more important thing, though, is that clearly, like, again, uh, this is, obviously, there's this huge disconnect between, like, honorable bulletaria and, like, sort of, like, war crimes and atrocities being committed. And this becomes very relevant when we get into finally King Alon. So I talked about this idea of like you have King Alon the first and then you get to King Alon the twelfth. The twelfth man of the Alon dynasty who ends up inheriting the throne comes with that this idea of inheriting sort of the filial piety and the mission. The things we learn about King Alon and this is something I think I've talked about in past podcasts where I was curious 
quite on what exactly is going through his head when he's deciding that oh you know I'm just gonna nuke the world like I like I don't care anymore like this is gone and like seeing it through this lens of Bolatari's history and knowing what type of person he is you can see like his life has always been basically tragic from the very start you have this man who's grown up on these legends of like knights and fighting dragons and good versus evil and there's a choice and there's this old one and man like sort of has to be able to go to the right in order to keep existing and and like reach the highest good as god intended all these things like you have this person who's hearing all these legends and these stories of eternal warriors and heroes and kings and dragons and all that and then he grows up but he has to end up becoming the king which means his predecessor sort of kicked the bucket you know probably in war because you're always fighting all the time and you can see this evidence in how Alant reacts when he first comes in because he's this person who is supposed to be good he's kind-hearted he loves the poor people and again this is something that like Bjor points out which again tells you that's not really normal for a king so Alant is very special in this regard and that he seems to be like the ideal wise man king who sort of does everything and rules properly and all these things but with that he's also supposed to be like this staunch and firm figure he's really tough when he needs to be and like he's not like he's not a pushover he's not like this guy who's just gonna roll over and let like his kingdom like fall apart because you know he's trying to be like a peacemaker or anything like that and this becomes a huge disconnect because this is a man who hates iniquities he absolutely hates all this evil and vice in the world but like evil and vice is the name of the game we see that there's boletarian spies planted all throughout the inner war where the knights and the nobles all are so it's like it's very clear that there's this huge disconnect between a lot being this very good person versus this idea of the reality of the job you know you have to kind of do all this sort of like cloak and dagger behind the scenes you have to do all these sort of like dishonorable things in order to you know have this function state, especially one that gets as big as Boletaria. When he ascends to the throne, he has to go to this place of legend, the the mausoleum, and he has to take one of the swords, but he doesn't, he picks only one of them. He doesn't take both. He picks the one specifically that's used that the more your soul is like a demon, the stronger it gets. And you can, and he has it for the rest of his life. So that what that tells us is that Alant was this person who, he was a good person, but he needed to steal himself. He didn't have the resolve needed to be the type of person he needed to be, and the country needed him to be a demon. His father, everyone like his family, his entire culture and history, everything that's brought him to this point needs him to be evil. He needs to do evil, and we can see how he continues the atrocities. Like, the slaves don't end under this king along. This becomes a huge focal point because then there's another question on the side of he's got to continue the atrocities and he brings Boletaria to the height, and as we see, Boletaria, it doesn't get better from there, goes down quite quickly. But on the other side, we have to talk, think about his personal life. There's also this question of, okay, where's the queen? Because Ostrava didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> but there's this strange silence on where she is. Like, no one's concerned about, oh, I wonder if her majesty's okay. Like, everyone seems to be kind of be under the impression that, yeah, she's been good and gone for a very long time now. There's no question about, like, what her fate is to all the characters in the setting. It seems to be pretty clear, like, with all the, the cloak and dagger and things that... Um, by the time we get to the end of, like, when the second Scourge begins, Alon's mostly alone. Like, there's just his son and then Rydell, as we seem to learn about. And everyone else, for one reason or another, whether it be, like, Cloak of Dagger, Suicide, Murder, like, whatever it be, that everyone else seems to be basically dead or gone and irrelevant from his life. Like, it's just not a question of, like, if only there was, like, this other, like, guy who could take over and be the king and everything would do. He's like, that's not a concern. Like, no one ever is thinking about that. It's just, there's a lot, and then there's Ariona, who's out of the country at the time. 
segueing back to what we're talking about. So Alant has this sort of very tragic life going through him already. And then we have the soul art. So the Nexus gets discovered, and we sort of talked about this before in the last podcast. The idea of like the Nexus is like this flying temple in the sky. Someone like Rydell finds it takes a magic staff from it and then this word gets back to king alant as like again going back to like their relationship in terms of the familial sense ends up being like okay uh hey bro i kind of found this flying magic temple with this witch in it it's like wait what and then they go out it's like it's like i sent i sent you to the border region but i didn't expect you to find that (laughs) so they end up going over it's like oh hey there's this magic temple what's this oh this thing is powered on souls wait there's a soul wait each of us have souls inside of us what is this he ends up leaving the temple and coming back and be like hey guys i found this this thing called the soul hearts and ma- magic basically becomes widespread pot gains like widespread popularity because boletari is using it and boletari is obviously the superpower at this point so now everyone wants to start using it because hey Bolet- if boletaria is like the strongest superpower in the country and now it has magic too you bet your ass everyone's gonna start trying to use magic if only for their self-defense no. The idea is that magic becomes wildly popular. Nothing could be better right now in Boletaria, right? But apparently it wasn't, because then Alon says, okay, I'm going to nuke the world now. It's like, okay, well, what's up with that? Well, we have to think about it. One, he's old. So the specter of death is sort of approaching him. So now more than ever, he's probably having a chance to, you know, what is my legacy? Because he has to look at now, uh, he's perpetuated atrocities. His entire family has perpetuated atrocities. His son has apparently left the country. And a lot's all by his lonesome. But then we have him thinking, okay, like my entire life, has been basically amounted to most of the people I cared for are dead. I have basically just perpetuated all of these war crimes and terrible things. Like, I've done all these things for my people. My country is still rotten at the core. And you can kind of see how this sort of gets in his head. He sort of, like, lost the will to, like, care anymore about what's happening to his subjects or to the country he is. Because it's like, what does it matter? Like, what's it matter if he adds a little more evil in the world? Like, the whole world is rotten anyway. No one really understands from his, like, you know, in his like little royal tower there, what he's going through on a personal level. And in the end, he ends up deciding, wait a second. Didn't the legends mention there is this thing that was left that if man was so rotten and awful and misusing everything, that maybe we could just, you know, have like the big reset button with a magical trash bin? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah there is. And then yeah. we, that, we go into him basically going back to the Nexus, unsealing the old one. Monumental's not happy about that. And then ends up trying to become a demon. A big point of contention to make here is that the demonic King Alant we make, in the English he's called, I think, just King Alant, but in the Japanese he's referred to as Alant the Failed to Be or the Failure. It was because, I think, the way he's portrayed, he's a person who wants to do good, but he has to do evil. He now has the case of, like, you know, nothing I ever did was good, so I'm going to do the greatest good, which is just wipe away, because no one really wants to live on. And I think it might be a case of when he became a demon, he might have had, even just for a moment's hesitation. And as a result, his transformation just sort of failed and he became this malformed monstrosity. So once he has all these powers, he ends up like sort of creating all the demons and then he goes back to Boletaria and starts wrecking shop. The fat officials are obviously allowed to roam free and sort of assist him. Rydell's been locked in Alatria jail where he's been left to rot and die. We have all the knights end up getting betrayed and killed. Clearly, they took it hard because now they've become black phantoms the only one who seems to escape this is valorfax one of the other twin fangs who ends up running all the way to the edge of the fog he creates the tear and he leaves and we talked about this before it wasn't that valorfax like went back like as many people theorize oh he maybe he went back in the fog and he died in there no no no. valorfax came out he told people everything that he saw that happened with alant and everything and then he died <laughs> and then bjorn mm-hmm. is like what 
what's all this? And he can't get more information from Valorfax because he's dead, so he runs in the fog. And then Ostrava's waiting a few years, but while he's waiting, Bjorg gets captured. Mm -hmm. So Bjorg's MIA, so Ostrava's just like, ah, I don't know what's going on. So then he enters the fog to figure out for himself. So it becomes this whole conga line of tragedy going through. <laughs> And thus is the end of Bulletaria. It started with being beset by wyverns, and it ends with being beset by wyverns. <laughs> that was Demon Souls Law with Loki. We talked about the Bulletarian priesthood and the Bulletarian palace. And could you tell us again where people can find you? So you can find me on Twitter at Loki underscore DS. That's Loki underscore DS. You could also, if you want to just read all the analyses of what I talk about, you'll get much more detail and much more time to digest it all. You can find that at LokiSouls.com. That's LokiSouls.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Loki. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to be on. Thank you. Thank you, Richie. Thank you, Sin. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See y'all next time. Bye. 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 I have risen from the dead to ask you but one question. What is the name that Sin gave to King Alart and then forced Richard to adopt? Leave your answer in the comments. There is no prize.